It's dark, it's cold. You're surrounded by your friends and possibly some family relatives as well. There's a fair amount of booze going around. Is this Christmas? Or is it Yule? Or Mother Night? Or Saturnalia? The darkest nights of the year have long been a time for celebrations. And today, betwixt the sheets, we are going to find out how these celebrations have changed and just what has stayed the same. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing a button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. What have you been up to this festive period? Have you been sipping mulled wine, sharing gifts with friends and family or patiently shoving mistletoe down your pants? If so, have you ever wondered where some of these customs come from? From Dickens to Coca-Cola, winter celebrations have grown and developed for centuries. And in this episode... I'm only joined by Professor Ronald Hutton, who's going to tell us how Christmas and New Year have changed, developed, adapted since the days of your olden timesy, and what other holidays have been celebrated throughout the years. I am ready if you are. So hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets, Professor Ronald Hutton. Hutton. Hello. Hello. I am so excited to talk to you. You have absolutely no idea. I'm having a proper academic fangirl moment here. Thank you. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. But I love your work and I love what you write about and you pop up on TV shows all the time. And now you're here and I'm so excited about it. Although I think that perhaps what you're going to talk to me about today might... (laughs) It might blow some of my much-beloved ideas of what Christmas is out of the water. I have a sneaky feeling that we might be doing that because there's this sort of... We like to think of... Or at least some people like to think of Christmas as this really ancient festival that predated Christianity and when we were all happily cavorting around bonfires and it was Yule and outside and orgies and I've got a feeling you're going to tell me that's not true. I think it's all true, except maybe they're brushing on the orgies. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So tell me about the Festival of Yule. What is known about that? What was that? Yule is just the ancient Scandinavian term for the Midwinter Festival, which was celebrated by pretty well all Europeans. If you're a Viking, you call it Yule. If you're an Anglo-Saxon, you call it Mudrenicht. If you're a Roman, you call it Saturnalia, and then the New Year is Kalendai. So the name varies wherever you are, but there are basic customs that don't. And is it always gathered around the winter solstice? Is that important to this festival? Yeah, it's pivotal. It's the turning of the year. Okay. The term solstice has changed completely in its meaning. It's now a scientific term. 
So we can say that the winter solstice of 2017 was, say, at 7.48 a.m. on the 21st of December. Until the 19th century, when you have scientific instruments and people talking to each other in different hemispheres, you can't do that. And then it means things utterly different and something more magical. And that is that as the year goes on, the sun rises and sets at different places in the horizon. That's why days get shorter and longer. But in June and December, it slows down. And around sunset on the 20th of December, 20th of June, it appears to stop moving. To the naked eye, it seems to rise and set at the same place on the horizon. And that's why the Romans gave this magical interlude in which normality is suspended, the name solstice. And solstice means the sun stands still. I did not know that. And Ronald, what will you be doing on the winter solstice? Do you have like a party with everything that you study about ancient pagan customs? And do you have a solstice party? I would love to, and the winter solstice itself at present, though the rail strikes are endangering it, <laughs> I'm supposed to be filming in Istanbul. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I bet the ancient pagans didn't have to deal with rail strikes and their winter solstice. No, for them, winter solstice was the time preeminent when you didn't actually move. You stayed home in your community and celebrated with it. Oh, wow. Do we have a sense of what happened around the winter solstice like what was the festival was it like spiritual reverence or was it like a proper knees up do we have any idea it's a bit of both the reverence goes with the mystery of the solstice and the rebirth of the sun and of nature and of the world mm. but there's a huge element of keeping happy at the most boring and depressing time of year and there are lots of components to it. The biggest is feasting. So one of the oldest Christmas customs is Christmas dinner. And the second is lighting up and warming up your home with big candles, big fire. And the third is decorating, Christmas decorations. They're traditionally greenery. Whatever is still green in the woods is brought in to decorate the home. And across most of Europe, it's holly and ivy. Here's a starter question. What do we mean by pagan? You hear that kind of bandied around about how Christmas was originally a pagan holiday. What does that mean? Does that have any historical meaning, really? Oh, it has. And in many ways, it can be made quite simple. Pagan, with a small p, is the term that we can use for the pre-Christian religions of Europe and the Near East. The religions that were there when Christianity arrived and against which it defined itself. And an enormous amount in later and modern culture comes out of the pagan ancient world, you know, literature, art, mythology, architecture, mm. philosophy. And we've been processing it ever since. The same goes for seasonal festivity. So it just sort of means anyone that's not a Christian? Yeah, it's a Christian holdall term for anybody who's not a Christian and is a member of an older religion than Christianity. Do we have any sense of how these people would have understood themselves? So presumably they weren't walking around going, I'm a pagan, are you a pagan? Do we have any idea of how they understood themselves? Yes, they were simply followers of traditional religions, okay. rooted religions. And the Christian term is pretty accurate. It's not derogatory. 
in its essence. It means those who follow the religions of the Pagus or Pagus, which is the local unit of government. In other words, the rooted religions, the old religions, the traditional religions. Is that what that means, rooted religions? Pagus is those who follow the religion of the Pagus, which is the local unit of government. It's the hood, the neighbourhood. So it's those who follow the religions of the traditional locality, the community. I did not know that. That is fascinating. So one of the things that, that it must be really difficult when you study the, the periods that you do, so we're talking ancient, ancient worlds, is there is limited sources with which to try and understand these people because they didn't write about themselves, or at least we've got nothing left that they wrote about themselves. That is quite correct. In the case of most of Northern Europe, there's absolutely zero. Nothing. Yeah, all that we know about their religions are a few comments made by literate peoples from the South who were pagan at the same time, like Greeks and Romans, or reconstructions of what paganism had been like in medieval Christian writings of the peoples concerned, like the Irish or the Norse. And unfortunately, we have no real idea of how accurate these reconstructions are, although all of it is clearly not made up. A great example of that, I think, is mistletoe. (laughs) Now, mistletoe is not made up, but there's this whole thing about the Druids loved mistletoe. It was really important. It was sacred. If you've watched Asterix, they're gathering it with a golden sickle. There's a whole big Druids and mistletoe. But am I right in thinking that that mostly comes down to what one Roman writer said about these customs. You're absolutely right, but we can probably trust him on this. For your money, you trust him? (laughs) Yeah, I think most people do on this point. Okay. When he says other things, he's less trustworthy. But he's writing about a part of the Roman Empire that was quite well known. Okay. And peoples in it before the Romans arrive who are quite well known to the Greeks and Romans. So it's southern France as it is now. And what Pliny says is that for the tribes in this area, mistletoe created a sensation when it was found growing on an oak tree. And if you know your woods, you'll know that the whole deal is mistletoe almost never grows on an oak tree. And so this is a blue moon event. And when it was found there, the locals in what's now southern France would get very excited and a priest among them who may or may not have been a druid, would get a golden sickle, climb the tree in a white robe, and cut the mistletoe, and it would be made into an all-healing type of medicine. But there are a number of things that aren't connected to this that do get connected. Mm. First is that the priest probably was a druid, because that's the local name for a priest among those who speak the languages of what's now France. But it doesn't actually say that. And the second thing is that the ritual, the white robe, the golden sickle, have all been projected onto druids in general. Right. And that may not be warranted. And the final thing, the big whammy, is that there's no connection between any of this and Christmas. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, it's a one-off event, finding the mistletoe on the oak. And Pliny says they don't wait till midwinter to cut it. They wait till the sixth day after the next new moon. And then they cut it. So there's no connection with midwinter at all. Right. So all the mistletoe that I've got is useless because, first of all, they didn't use it that way. Second of all, it probably didn't grow on an oak tree. 
And if I, if I remember my Pliny correctly, there weren't two white bullocks sacrificed underneath it when it was being gathered. Uh, you're right about the white bullocks. They're a detail I left out, being kind-hearted. <laughs> Your mistletoe at Christmas and mine is very important because it becomes a fashionable Christmas decoration in London in the 18th century when it becomes common for the first time in Britain. And it's added as an exotic to the familiar holly and ivy. And in the late 18th century, servants in London houses start kissing underneath it. Don't know why, but you know, it's a great idea. Yeah, bring it on. And when their mistresses and masters find out they're doing this, really commendably, instead of stopping it, they imitate it. <laughs> I bet they did. So we can <laughs> stop worrying about the Druids. What we're doing under the mistletoe is commemorating the enterprise of domestic servants in 18th century England and the broad-mindedness of the people who employed them. And those are two great causes. I endorse them wholeheartedly. There are some satirical prints that come out sort of the early 19th century, one by Thomas Rowlandson in particular, it's called Christmas Gambles. You can Google it and look it up. And it's this really debauched scene underneath this sprig of mistletoe that's obviously in a kitchen. And like there's nude people cavorting. And it looks like, like, did mistletoe really do this? Did it have that kind of a, a reputation of like, you know, you just produce this mistletoe and now everybody has just gone completely AWOL and are just ripping the knickers off each other? Rowlandson was a great producer of crowd scenes, which could politely be called erotic. Mm. So shepherds and shepherdesses, sultans and harems, lots and lots and lots of bare writhing bodies. You get the point? I do, indeed, yes. Less to do with general custom than with Rowlandson and his art. Mm. Yes, he was kind of the Paul Raymond of uh, <laughs> his age in terms of publication. So do we have any idea where the kissing thing came from? Or is that one of those things that's just sort of lost to us? It's lost. It just appears among domestic servants, the chamber boys and the chambermaids. Wow. OK, so that's nothing to do with druids. But for your money, mistletoe grown on an oak was sacred to these people. Yes, it was definitely sacred to the priests, the tribes of southern France, who almost certainly could be called druids. OK, and is there supporting evidence from anywhere else about mistletoe? Because I know that some mistletoe pollens were found in the gut of the bog body Lindo man, but that might have just been an accident. Yeah, it might have been an accident. It might just have blown onto his last meal. Right. Oh, OK. He was eating in the open air. It's only four grains of mistletoe. That's not really enough for a drink. Yeah, that's a good point. If it weren't for Pliny, we wouldn't pay any attention to the mistletoe and Lindo man. That's very true. Okay, so let's think about some other Christmas traditions that we like to think of as being pagan in the loosest term. The Christmas tree. Can we date that back to the ancient world? No, but... Oh. <laughs> the main point about all sorts of things we can't date back to the ancient world is they're all relatively modern forms okay. of things which more broadly do date back to the ancient world. Mm. So, decorating your temples, then your churches, then your homes with greenery at midwinter is prehistoric. It emerges into history with the Romans. The decoration of temples of greenery is mentioned among the Anglo-Saxons by a pope round about 600. So we know it was done. Mistletoe and the Christmas tree are just more recent additions to the holly and the ivy. The Christmas tree is German. Right. 
Vorsprung durch Technik <laughs> is actually not a medieval or ancient German custom. It appears oh. at Fussburg Cathedral in 1604, when somebody had the great idea of taking the risk of lighting up a big evergreen tree in the cathedral with candles. And everybody liked it so much that it spread to other churches and then to people's homes. And German refugees from Napoleon brought it to England in the 1810s. But it was really that notable German immigrant, Prince Albert, who popularised it by bringing it into the royal family. Oh, even so, in 1850, Charles Dickens, who wrote more about Christmas than most people, could still snootily call it the new German toy. Oh, did he? That's a bit of shade, isn't it? It is, yes. A, a slight sniff in the air. Right, OK. So mistletoe is about servants trying to kiss each other in the 18th century. Christmas trees is about German immigrants coming over here and bringing us their Christmas trees. Oh, what about caroling and wassailing because that's still done in some places around the country isn't it tell me about wassailing i'll tell you about both oh please do caroling is christian wassailing is probably pagan caroling is started by saint francis's people the franciscan friars as part of their missionary efforts in the middle ages and it's originally an attempt to make Christianity fun by getting people to dance round holding hands and singing songs in praise of God, which can be fun. Yeah, I can see that. And it is called the Carole. And this continues till the end of the Middle Ages when the dance gets boring and it's jettisoned and the songs are kept up. Now, carols are not specifically at Christmas for hundreds of years. There are May carols, Halloween carols, Midsummer carols. But it's really Christmas when you need to collect money for charity or for yourselves by singing. It's the time when people are most in need. Right. And therefore, Christmas carols kept up and kept on being augmented and multiplied and the other carols died out. Wassailing's utterly different. It's singing to your land and your property to make it abundant for the next year. If you can wassle people by presenting them with a bowl of hooch and inviting them to drink from it and be blessed. You wassail your beehives by singing to the bees. You wassail your cereal fields by singing to them to be fruitful. You wassail your cattle and sheep by singing to them and their buyers and their stables. And of course, you wassail your orchards by singing to the apple trees. Right. I don't have any of those things. I'm not sure what I can wassail to. Could wassail your friends. I could wassail my friends or possibly a bottle of Prosecco well, in the fridge. Uh, you wassail things with the bottle. Oh, right. That's the start of a good wassailing. <laughs> so how does Yule fit into other pre-Christian pagan yearly festivals? Like the summer solstice, for example, that was a big deal as well. A very big deal. It was the greatest fire festival in Northern Europe. Really, midwinter's the biggest right. of all the six traditional festivals of old Northern Europe that spread out rather unevenly around the year. It's the biggest simply because people are doing least in midwinter, so they have the most time for festivity. And they're all back in the community at that time, doing nothing. OK. But otherwise, there are the feasts that begin the seasons, the feast of Imolc or Candlemas or Solmanath to begin 
the spring at the beginning of February, the feast to begin summer at the beginning of May, May Day, Beltane, Kalam Mai, the summer nights. There's a feast that begins autumn, Lunasar, Lamas, Gwil Aust, and the one that begins winter, which is Nos Galan or Sarwan, or the winter nights, uh, alias Halloween. Wow. And there are midwinter and midsummer. You don't get a lot going on around the equinoxes in ancient times, at least north of the Alps, because everyone's too busy doing economic things around that time. That makes sense. What calendars were these people using? I mean, they weren't using the Gregorian Roman calendar. Do we have a sense of how they understood time passing? No, except that they had some sense of the seasons because they all had these feasts to begin them when the sun got to a certain point. They did have their own calendars, which just very occasionally emerge into modernity, but they always emerge in bits. The most famous is the Coligny calendar, which is a native Celtic, a Gaulish calendar from eastern France. But it was found in a gigantic number of pieces, and it's a jigsaw with a lot of the pieces missing. And even the reconstructions that have been made result in completely different and vehemently controversial reconstructions among experts. <laughs> I keep well clear of the argument. Is that a proper bun fight then, if you try and get involved in that one? Yeah, you get three astronomers <laughs> against each other over the Coligny calendar. And really, the rumble in the jungle doesn't come near it. <laughs> I love that. I'll be back with Ronald after this short break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. I don't know about you, but one thing that bugs me is having to plan and cook healthy-ish delicious meals every single day. Frankly, I think it's time that could be better spent. You might be saying, hey, Kate, what's the solution? Well, luckily for you and me, Factor has made it super easy to eat quickly and deliciously. Their fresh, chef-created, dietitian approved meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. With over 35 meals to choose from each week, you can tailor your orders to fit your dietary needs and your schedule, even pausing and rescheduling deliveries if you need to. These are restaurant quality meals that require no prep, make no mess and are delivered right to your door. With Factor, you can take the stress out of healthy living. Head to factormeals.com slash betwixt50 and use the code betwixt50 to get 50% off. That's code betwixt50 at factormeals.com slash betwixt50 to get 50% off. Being part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families past and present from all over the world to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl. She mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all she was desperately lonely. 
Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. festivals how do we know about them is it again is it roman writers writing about them do we have other evidence left to us a lot of it's slightly later medieval stuff okay so we know about the winter nights the summer nights and yule among the scandinavians the vikings from icelandic writers in the 12th 13th centuries Mm. we know about the anglo-saxons beautiful name for midwinter the winter festival the mother night modrenicht because Bede, the first great english historian said that his pagan ancestors had celebrated this as their favorite do we know why it was called mother's night well the translation is disputed oh i like the one the mother night but it could mean the night of the mothers Right. Which opens up all sorts of linguistic cans. We don't know, is the answer. Can I ask you about Father Christmas? Yeah. Because there's Santa Claus, who is the American interpretation of Sinterklaas and his spoilful of jelly and all of that stuff. And then there's Father Christmas, who is a much older stranger figure. Santa Claus is older in the sense of a backstory, a lineage, because he's originally an early Christian saint, a bishop from what's now Turkey who was made patron saint of children. Mm-hmm. And his feast day was the 6th of December. And in some parts of Europe, it became accustomed to tell children that he'd come riding round on a grey horse in his bishop's kit and deliver a present to a good child, leaving it in the child's shoe on the eve of his day. So we're talking about the night of the 5th of December. And when he reached... America with Dutch settlers. He had the Dutch name of Sinterklaas, as you said, St. Nicholas. And he settled in New Amsterdam, the Dutch city, which became, when the British got it, New York. Oh. And then he had a makeover, because in 1821, a New Yorker called Clement Clark Moore wrote a poem for his children in which he transformed the medieval saint in his bishop's robes with his horse into a spirit of the northern midwinter who was secularised, rode in a sleigh drawn by reindeer and came down chimneys with a sack on Christmas Eve to give presents to children. And this poem spread, it proved wildly popular, and the reborn Santa Claus took over America, crossing the Atlantic in the 1880s to Britain. There he blended with Father Christmas. Father Christmas was born in 1616 in a pamphlet, probably written by Ben Jonson, the poet and friend of Shakespeare, which was a satire on the Puritans who were trying to abolish Christmas as pagan and Catholic. And it personified Christmas for the first time as a jolly old man. And 
He was so lovable that he's remained with us ever since, except he wasn't associated with children. He didn't give presents to anybody. He simply represented Christmas feasting and games. But of course, once Santa arrived from America, Father C decided to upgrade and made a merger. And so Father Christmas and Santa Claus with the presents, the chimney trip on Christmas Eve have been identical ever since. Like the Puritans famously didn't care very much for Christmas, did they? They tried to ban it or was it more that they tried to ban people celebrating it in naughty ways? No, they tried to ban people celebrating it in church. Okay, okay, okay. They were out to abolish it as an official festival in which people went to church. And they were amazingly good at doing that while they were in power. What they couldn't do was stop people celebrating it at home. Mm. And they didn't really try. So the celebration at home went on. There's a lovely diary entry for somebody who was in the House of Commons on Christmas Day 1656, which was the centre of the period of abolition. And an MP stood up and he said he noticed that the House of Commons was almost empty and that he'd been kept awake all night by people celebrating a festival that was no longer supposed to exist. But the Scots, the Scots had a much more radical type of reformation of Protestant Christianity than we had, which was the model that the Puritans were trying to follow in England. And they abolished Christmas really successfully. And the Scots did not reinstitute Christmas as a full public holiday until 1958. No. Yeah, but you can't be around in a northern midwinter and have no festival without going bonkers. And so the Scots ramped up New Year, Hogmanay, as their big midwinter festival instead. And the 20th century, they gave us New Year's Eve as a big deal. And we gave them Christmas. So we have a Twin Peak festival on both sides of the border. And that's why that happens. I didn't know that. Did the Christians, the Puritans even, try and ban any other pagan festivals? Was it just Christmas they had in their sights or did they want Easter out the way and various other things? Well, they weren't really against pagan festivals so much as Christian festivals, which they thought were too pagan. And they did ban Easter and they banned Saints' Days, the Days of the Apostles. They banned every feast day apart from Sunday. Oh. But they did realise that people need holidays, so they brought in rather boring kind of communist state festivals. like What was a Puritan holiday? Well, like the second Tuesday on each month being a holiday for the youth. They could get off their jobs, their apprenticeships and play football and so on. Okay. But there's no real ring to the second Tuesday of the month, is there? No, no, nobody's leaving their stockings out on the bed for the second Tuesday of the month. But Father Christmas, I've always wondered this, this sort of ancient figure of, ancient-ish, old figure of Father Christmas, is he linked to the ghost of Christmas present in A Christmas Carol and the Green Knight in Sigwain and the Green Knight, that kind of big figure with his green robes and his waving holly bushes and big beard and all that stuff. Is that the same root person? He's definitely linked to the spirit of Christmas because Dickens knew all about Father Christmas. He's definitely not linked to the Green Knight because the Green Knight is 14th century. Right. And that is 300 years before Father Christmas appears. Good point. Okay. Whether he's a midwinter spirit can be discussed. The great thing about his green colour is it marks him off as something that's not human Mm. or as 
as a human who's under a really heavy enchantment, which is actually what he is. Okay, that's interesting. That's answered that one. What is a midwinter spirit? I'm going to be mundane. It's a spirit that is a kind of non-human entity abroad in the natural world who happens to be particularly active in winter. I mean, there are forest spirits, there are water spirits, there are rock spirits, there are fire spirits. Mm. And there are spirits that come out in May and disappear in October. So there are seasonal spirits as well. Winter spirits tend to be associated with winter things like frost and darkness. Jack Frost. Yeah. Of course. Christmas does kind of have this reputation of where magic things happen. Like I said, it's it's, it's a magical time, but I mean like magic as in... You know, like, if you're thinking about a story about Seguin and the Green Knight, it's not a coincidence that that whole strange story takes place around Christmas. And we're talking about, like, midwinter spirits. I mean, was this a time when sort of, I don't want to say Christmas fairies and imps and stuff, but has it long had that reputation of this is a special time when magic happens? Festivals, in general, are special times when magic happens. Okay. The Welsh had the lovely name of Asbrodnos, Ghost Night, Ooh. for a festival night. So Midsummer, May Day, Halloween, these are all notoriously creepy or exciting times to encounter fairies or ghosts or other spirits. And a solstice is particularly magical because it's a time when the sun is standing still. Mm. And so normal supernatural bounds are loosed and rules are suspended. So you're much more likely to meet something that isn't human and might be interested in a relationship of some sort. Now you're talking. Until the sun starts to move. So in midwinter, the moment when you can usually see the sun is starting to move again is the 25th of December, which is why Christmas is there. The Romans called it Sol Invictus, literally Natalis Sol Invictus, sun return, sun birthday. Wow. Is that why we have the 12 days of Christmas? They're just basically a reason for having a good long winter festival. The 12 days of Christmas grow up slowly between Anglo-Saxon times and the late Middle Ages. They keep on extending rather like Uh, pre-Christmas preparation period now. Right. Okay, so that makes sense. So that wasn't like it was a very specific 12-day long festival that we start here and we finish it. That's just kind of evolved over the years. Yes, by the end of the Middle Ages, it actually was 12 days of holiday. But then people... God, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, we could do this again. Mm. But people did work an awful lot harder regularly than we do now. And also, with almost everybody being tied up with trading or especially farming, there is nothing to do at midwinter. That's very true. You don't think about... like It would have been a very, very different set... Of circumstances, obviously, but there wouldn't have been as much work to do. And whenever I teach my students about this kind of very medieval history, I'm always trying to emphasise how dark it was. Not like the dark ages, but as in like they didn't have streetlights or electric lights. And it's like you can't quite comprehend how black and dark. And when it's dark at half three in the afternoon, there are no lights. So people are sort of sat around in the darkness in ways that we can't really comprehend today. That's absolutely right. And the fire in the pub means everything. Absolutely. And the beer as well. One of the things I wanted to ask you is because one day I'll actually go there to see this. But the midwinter solstice rising over Stonehenge, indeed the summer solstice over Stonehenge, and the English heritage now do a live feed of that. And you can actually watch the sun 
coming up on the winter solstice and it's actually quite moving it's quite lovely i'd love to be there but what is the link between stonehenge and the solstices other than it makes a very nice youtube video like there's a proper link there or is that something that's just become tangled up over the years no a link with the solstices is fundamental to stonehenge oh thank god oh, built into it right start. The link with the summer solstice is clear. It's the avenue that leads into and out of the stones is aligned directly on the rising sun. But the effect we've lost, which was more impressive still, is the midwinter sunset at Stonehenge, because the greatest of the three stone settings that define Stonehenge on a t-shirt or an album cover are what the great trilithon was aligned directly on the midwinter sunset, so when the sun went down, a laser-like beam of red light shone in the narrow gap between the two upright stones, straight on the altar stone. Wow. But it was lost because Stonehenge was built too carelessly, in too much of a hurry. Honestly. Either they couldn't find, or they didn't bother to find, a second upright stone that went deep enough into the earth they got a much shorter one and hoped that it would last. It didn't. It fell over and broke. We don't exactly know when. And not only fell forward and knocked the altar stone over, but broke in half itself forever and toppled the lintel, the big stone on top of the upright. And so the centre was wrecked and could never be used again for its original ceremonies. And those broken bits of stone are still there. I didn't know that. See, pay cheap, pay twice. How do we know then that that was supposed to be the original stone if it's if it's all kind of in pieces well it's in two pieces okay okay that makes more sense you can see the size of the original thing it just wasn't long enough they took a risk see don't take a risk don't go cheap when you are putting up important buildings and foundation work that's the moral of this story cowboys Cowboys, stonehenge builders ronald you have been amazing to talk to and i've got one final question for you how do you celebrate christmas what's a christmas day for you are you cavorting around a bonfire no it'll be with my partner at her place in wales and it'll begin on christmas eve and we bring in holly from the nearby wood in quite big boughs and build a Christmas tree out of it. That is amazing. Hang it with lights and we'll have an open fire, which is not exactly a bonfire, but as an indoors thing is quite a blaze and a, a full-size hearth. And we'll have Christmas dinner, which will take about five hours to cook and will be extremely elaborate. And when New Year comes, I shall first foot the house with gifts and open the back door for the old year and sing it out, and open the New Year's door from the front and sing it in. So those are our rituals. What does that mean to first foot gifts? What's that? It's really the Northern English, Southern Scottish way of blessing the house at New Year, which is the first person to cross the threshold should be bringing gifts and a blessing for the house. And so I don't leave anything to chance. I cheat for my girlfriend and go out of the back door, pick up my presents, and then come in through the front door to sing a blessing on her house. Oh, that is amazing. Ronald, you have just been the best Christmas treat to talk to. And if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Where can they find your work? Oh, public libraries. 
perfect. They'll find me in the catalogue under my name. Libraries need support and they won't cost you anything. Go to the libraries, absolutely. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You have just been wonderful. Thank you. You've been great as a hostess. It's been lovely talking. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again betwixt the sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.